I know of a couple who, when their son was a senior in high school, he just hated it, didn't want to go. He didn't connect socially. He did not really care academically, and his parents were kind of at a loss to get him motivated to do what was right. As a matter of fact, things got so bad that his mother had to resort to drastic measures just to get him out of bed in the morning. She would go into his room and sing off-key at the top of her lungs. Well, finally, he would take the sheets, and he'd throw them off, and he'd grab a T-shirt and give it a sniff test. (laughs) He didn't really care what he looked like and grouch his way out the door. But then halfway through the semester, something his parents deemed miraculous happened. Their son started to get up on time. He took a shower, combed his hair, and even had his mother iron his clothes a couple days. Well, of course, they were ecstatic about this change of events, but they couldn't help wonder what happened. Well, about a week later, they learned the what. Her name was Emily. (laughs) Why the dramatic turnaround? See if this works. (laughs) Because love changes everything. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in all aspects of life, have to versus love makes all the motivational difference in the world. When you look at Jesus in the Gospels, the biggest issues that he had were with the religious leaders of his day and the way that they followed the law. Now, he didn't have a problem with them following the law. He says in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, the law is a good thing. His problem was the way they followed it. Their law separated people rather than bring them together. It kind of created caste systems, levels of different groups, which is not a good thing. It used guilt and condemnation as motivation to do what's right, to follow God. And really what it did was it took the law and made it primary and sidestepped the lawgiver. Well, Jesus said this is wrong, and he spoke out against this, and these religious leaders attacked him like a pack of wild hyenas. What I want us to do this morning is look at Jesus and an encounter he had with a law man. What happened And how he showed them their interpretation was was wrong and what God's law was really all about. So I want to ask you to take your Bibles or your phones and open them to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And we're going to read this together. We're going to start in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, Of all the commandments, which one is the most important? To grasp the the context of really what he's saying here, we need to understand what this man means by all the commands. The Jewish leaders had taken God, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, and extracted 613 rules. 248 commands and 365 prohibitions. And for good measure, they added on 1,521 amendments to those. Pretty tough to keep going. And they demanded absolute obedience to their interpretations. Now, that was another issue that Jesus had with them because they did not follow those commands themselves and couldn't do it 
which of course he knew they couldn't. And so he said, guys, this, this is wrong. But that's Matthew 23 when he talks about all that. That's a totally different lesson. These religious leaders always wanted to debate and argue and nitpick over the law. And what they would do was they would find little ways to try to trap Jesus and make him break their law and ruin his reputation as a rabbi. But to me, this man in Mark 12 was a little bit different because he says what? He says, you know what? There's a good answer here. He's got something right to say. And I think this man asked the greatest law question that needs to be asked. Out of all of them, which one's the greatest? Good question, right? With 613, they can't all be the same. There has to be some that are weightier than others. And to answer their question, Jesus goes right to the Torah, which was the foundation of their interpretation of the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it contains the great Shema, which is the foundational prayer morning and evening for Jews even to this day. As to the question, what is the greatest command of all? What's the most important thing that God ever said? He quotes this great Shema almost verbatim. The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to the tag. There is no commandment greater than these. When Ernest Gordon was a teenager, you guys' age, some of you, he went off to fight World War II. And about a year in, he was captured by the Japanese. Gordon says a lot of people talk about how cruel the Nazis were. We hear a lot about that, right? He said the Japanese could be just as cruel. He said, but he didn't know what was worse the way the Japanese treated them or the way the prisoners treated each other. They were all from different countries, and so there was territorial lines. But what they would do was they would tell on each other for more rations. They would stab each other in the back. If somebody found a rat or a mouse or something like that, I know that sounds gross, but if it was extra meat or something like that, they'd beat each other up and take it. He said they were terrible to each other. But then one day something happened, he said, that changed all that. They were lined up, the Burma Railway, he, he helped work on that, which was slave labor. They were lined up after a day of work like this, and there, there, a guy came from the tool shed, a Japanese sh soldier, and said, there's a shovel missing. Well, their squad leader, the Japanese prisoner leader, he was a pretty cruel man, sadistic, Gordon said. He started screaming and yelling and berating them and said, the person who stole that shovel better show up right now, better admit it, because we're, we're going to fix this. Not a word. Well, finally, he takes his gun, cocks it, walks to the first guy in line and says, if the person who stole that shovel does not admit it right now, I'm going to shoot this man in the head and go down the line until the person who did it admits it. And from the back of the formation, this voice spoke up and said, I did it. I stole the shovel. He was ordered to come up front, and that Japanese sadist took the butt of his rifle and beat that guy to death right in front of everybody. But before they could drag his body off, the guy came back from the tool shed and said, wait a minute, we made a mistake. There was no shovel missing. Gordon said at that moment, the way the prisoners treated each other was completely different and changed.
after that act of sacrificial love. They begin to take care of one another. If somebody was falling behind in a detail, which meant you were probably going to die, they would pick that person up. If you couldn't get to the rations, you were going to starve to death. They would take their meager rations that they would turn people in before over and share them with one another. He said they truly began to get rid of all lines and be good to each other. Well, he said they knew they were about to be liberated about a year later. More pain, more agony, more misery. Because they could hear the bombs getting closer. Well, finally, a few days before the uh, liberators came, the Japanese soldiers, knowing they were done, they turned the camp over to the American and every other country prisoners. But guess what? Not one hair on those Japanese captors' head was harmed. Even the guy who had murdered their friend unjustly right in front of them. They said, we are going to go by the Geneva Convention. We are going to treat them with respect and dignity. They're going to be our prisoners the right way. And then when the liberators came, right, they made sure that none of them touched these Japanese prisoners either. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, how does that happen? Somebody beats you, they murder your friend in front of you, they torture you, they make your life miserable for a few years, and you treat them with dignity and honor and respect. There's only one way. Love changes everything. You know, most people tend to think of 1 Corinthians 13 as a marriage passage. We hear it at weddings a lot of times. But I think that it's so much more. Paul's words fit seamlessly with Jesus' greatest command to love. Listen to this. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move a mountain but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. Paul's saying here, brothers and sisters, we can obey every command in the book. We can have great biblical knowledge and win a bunch of Bible bowls. We can speak with great eloquence for God. We can be one of the most sacrificial giving people on the planet. We can be at church every Sunday. But if what we do if heartfelt, true love is not the motivating factor for our actions, he says in the end, they're empty of real value. Why? I bet you know the answer to that by now, don't you? Because love changes things. This young lady's name is Shy Johnson. Shy was born with a brain disorder that keeps her probably at a second or third grade level. I think we all know that kids in, in high school can be pretty brutal at times. Well, when Shy got into ninth grade, that's when it really kicked in for her. Some of the boys at the school would push her into a locker. One even threw food at her 
and called her names I would never say under any context. Well, her mother, of course, was devastated. Shy was a happy child and would come home crying every day. Her mother went through the administrators, but nothing seemed to work. But then she remembered. They had a Special Olympics banquet, and there was a young man who was quarterback of the football team. His name was Carson Jones. Carson had been nice to Shy, so she contacted Carson and said, Carson, if you would, please just get me some names. Find out who's doing the worst of it so I can report them, and this will stop. Well, Carson said, Miss Johnson, I'll do that. But the more he thought about it, and teenagers, you know this, he said, if I go tell on him, guess what's going to happen to Shy? It's just going to get worse. So he had a better idea. He got all his football buddies together, and they decided they were going to walk Shy to class every single day. She came and sat at the football table, and they made her a trainer on the football team. As you can guess immediately what happened to all the making fun of and stuff like that. It dried up pretty quick. Now Shy calls the football team her boys. Her mother says she's found her joy again, she's found her smile, but she was a little worried because Carson graduated. Is it going to happen again? Will anybody take the leadership? Well, he has a younger brother whose name is Carter. In the same grade as Shy. And guess what Carter did? He said, I got this. He took over her care, he got the guys together, and made sure that she continued to be protected and cared for. Brothers and sisters, the neatest thing about this is these kids didn't tell anybody. They weren't doing it for show. They weren't doing it to let people say what great people I am. They saw a fellow student in need hurting, and they reached out and responded to her in kindness and goodness. Shy's life is better today. All the bullying has stopped. And why? Can you say it with me? Love changes everything. Amen? What I want to do now is I want to apply this truth to what we're about to do today. You know, really at its core, today is not about being blessed or being a blessing. It's about love. Over there, there are 250 boxes packed with food and celery. There were probably 100 people here yesterday just grinning and smiling. And the little kids, I had one little girl, she was walking by. She's about this tall. And she had a bag, and she was going. <laughs> it was the sweetest thing you ever saw. She was smiling the whole time. There was joy. There was family. There was community. Let me ask you a question. Why are all those boxes over there? Love. Today, over 150 people at Christian Village Precious senior saints got some food and other supplies they needed. The reason? Love. And in a few minutes, many of you are going to spend hours just going all over San Angelo and light people's Thanksgiving up with a ton of stuff that they're not expecting, and it is going to make their holiday season. The motivation? Brothers and sisters, I want us to see what we're about to do through spiritual eyes. What does Jesus say the greatest command of all is? Love God and love your neighbor. We're about to do both of those as a family. Isn't that cool? 
So I want to say thank you for all the love you've expressed and you're going to express. Now, just go over there in the back, grab a box, take your family, and have a blast. But you know, as we, as we end up, I think we would be remiss if we didn't speak about the greatest love of all. And you know what that is, don't you? It's God's love for us through the sacrifice of his son. I got to tell you, whenever I think about this concept of Jesus dying for my sins, the verse that stands out to me more than anything is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't clean ourselves up get rid of our bad habits, start going to church and be this wonderful person and said, oh, now you merit Jesus dying for you. In all of our mess and all of our muck and all of our private sin, I've asked people in churches all over the country, I said, if the worst thing you ever did right now was made public, what would you do? I'd crawl into the pew. <laughs> and you would too. We've all blown it. We've all messed up. But even with all that, we didn't have to fix that first. Jesus died for us anyway. He took our punishment. He took our sin. He knew that. He knew we were going to keep failing. But he still loves us. It's the greatest gift of all human history. So today, maybe there's someone in this room. You've been wrestling with this. You understand you're not right with God. Yesterday wasn't the day of salvation. You didn't do it. Tomorrow's not the day of salvation. Today is the salvation, the day of salvation. Make it right. Come to Jesus. Trust in him. Repent of your sins. Be baptized into him for the remission of your sins. Be filled with his Holy Spirit. And then what do we do? Brothers and sisters, it's not brain surgery. Just go out in response to his love and love. That's the invitation as we stand and sing.